Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the top stories this week, continuing into next, Congress will continue to debate on what to do about enhanced jobless benefits that are set to expire at the end of this coming week. Some 25 million Americans are set to lose an extra $600 a week that they were given to help keep them afloat during the pandemic shutdowns. Also on the table is whether to dish out more individual stimulus payments. For more on what Congress is debating, we'll speak to Eric Morath, labor economics and policy reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Congress is trying to hash out what appears to be some sort of compromise. The administration has signaled support for some type of extension, perhaps at a lower level, perhaps it phases out, which suggests there might be some ground to compromise. But the Democrats have already said they'd like the full $600 to be extended into next year. And other Republicans have called for it to be ended completely. So it kind of remains to be seen if there'll be a middle ground. You're exactly right that given how these payments are made on a weekly basis, there's concern in a number of states that effectively this money ends within a few days rather than a little bit more than a week from now. So there's some urgency for Congress to maybe act even sooner than the deadline, but uh, I've been covering things in Washington long enough. Usually we have to wait to exactly the deadline before we uh, get a compromise. Right, exactly. I've been seeing from some Republicans that they possibly would be open to extending it if it was set at a lower amount between $200 and $400. And one of the things their reasoning for that is that a lot of people are actually making more money with this added unemployment benefit than they would through their normal jobs. And one of the lines of thinking is that people don't want to come back to work because they're making more money on unemployment. Yeah, that's correct. The University of Chicago did a study and they found a little more than two thirds of those receiving unemployment benefits are receiving more income now than they did at their previous jobs. And how we got to that point is the $600 was intended to boost the average unemployment payment to the median wage for a full-time worker in the U.S. But what we've learned since is that the person laid off wasn't the median wage earner, much more likely to be a lower wage worker, someone that maybe works at a restaurant, a hotel, somewhere in the tourism industry. And those folks often you know, make less than the 23 or $24 an hour that the unemployment benefits pay. So even lowering it to three or 400, there'll be some workers that will still be paid more. I mean, certainly if you're making the minimum wage, which still in many states is 725 an hour, even 200 on top of unemployment benefits could mean that you're making more money than you did before, but uh, certainly smaller share of workers would. There's a lot of stuff on the table, obviously. What are we hearing about Another round of stimulus checks. The last time it was $1,200 individual payments to people. Are we hearing any movement on that front? Yeah. uh, Again, the administration has signaled support for that. And that kind of brings up this debate around, you know, should these payments be targeted? One way to target them is to people who lost their jobs. Another way to target them is to businesses that say they need loans or grants to continue to employ people or You don't target and you say, you know, anyone that makes below a certain income level gets another $1,200 check. Now, that puts a lot of stimulus into the economy. So that would probably help support the economic growth. It's kind of found money. But 
at the same time, you know, it's not necessarily directly helping those that either lost their jobs or their businesses have suffered due to the pandemic. There was a couple of interesting things I saw in one of your latest articles talking about all of this. On the employer side, you know, some businesses might need to raise wages to attract workers to either get them out of the, you know, want to get out of unemployment or just even feel like it's worth their safety, you know, if they're scared about getting sick. But that's a difficult thing to do, especially right now with how slow things are going. So, you know, we talked to, for that article, someone who operates a call center in Kentucky, and he said, you know, he's offering $15 an hour for those jobs, just kind of uh, actually a little above the industry standard. And he says, you know, he can't get workers because many of the people that he would hire for this job are making something more than $20 an hour on unemployment benefits. So you can understand how that would be difficult for them. You know, some economists, though, have said, you know, maybe that means you need to raise your wages because, it's a different ballgame now. People may not want to report to an office. People may not be able to because they have childcare issues or they or someone they know is sick. The challenge is, and this is what the business owner told me, is like, yeah, if I rose, raised everyone's wages, I wouldn't win any contract. So that's kind of the argument that you can't operate your business profitably if you uh, greatly increased wages. But, you know, I do think there's probably some middle ground. A lot of discussion in, among academia, at least, is that people who are considered essential workers, the idea that essential worker also is the lowest paid and therefore inherently in economic terms, the least valued worker doesn't really make sense to a lot of economists. So that's something I think that businesses will have to reexamine. The last thing I wanted to ask was, because uh, there's just some interesting uh, notes in it about which states would be the most affected by these extra benefits expiring. Nevada would be the worst state affected. They have the highest share of workers who are getting these enhanced benefits. Nevada's economy has really been decimated by the coronavirus because so much of it is tied to Las Vegas tourism. The vast majority of people that live in Nevada live in the Las Vegas area, and most are within one or two degrees to the casino and entertainment industry. So, you know, even people like uh, doctors and accountants, you know, they are getting their business by helping people who work at these hotels and, and casinos. So that area has been really hard hit. And, you know, some of them have been allowed to reopen, but destinations, Hawaii is another place, they're really seeing their economy hit. Whereas some places like the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee, now they're doing a little bit better because they're getting people who don't want to fly to Hawaii. Maybe they're willing to drive from New York to Tennessee, for example. The conversation continues to see what's going to happen with these extra benefits. I can't imagine Congress not doing something, but what form it will take is going to be the big question. Eric Marath, labor economics and policy reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Happy to join you as always. When looking at the economic toll the pandemic has inflicted on the country, many people are focused on job losses and unemployment benefits. But another thing to look out for is wage cuts. Many Americans who kept their jobs have seen temporary hour and pay cuts that could become permanent or pave the way for more layoffs. For more on this, we'll speak to Megan Casella, economics reporter at Politico. This is a trend that we're starting to see, and there's no federal data on this, really. Federal data actually shows that wages are rising, but that's only because low-wage workers are disproportionately losing their jobs. And so what we're starting to see now is economists putting out different studies and estimates, and likely at least 4 million, maybe up to 7 million workers have taken cuts 
for their pay over the past several weeks, couple of months now, likely because their employer, you know, looked at their balance sheets and said, maybe as a way to preserve jobs, we're just going to have everybody take a 10% cut or 20% cut, whatever it might have been. The issue, though, is that now, you know, that trend is growing for one. It tends to be a really rare move in the U.S. because employers know that employees obviously hate wage cuts. It's bad for morale. It can be bad for productivity. But now that these shutdowns are really lasting longer than many of us anticipated in March and April, that they might either become permanent or at least last for, you know, another several months, perhaps through the end of the year, or that they might lead to layoffs. Because if if an employer in April said, I need to cut income, and now, you know, they're in really dire straits and need another move, another way to save money, the only step left really is to probably lay off some workers. And you look at it from the perspective of both sides, the employee their business tells them, hey, we need to cut your pay just to make it through. You say, okay, I have no other option. I probably am not going to be able to find another job that will pay me the same. And this is going to be short term. So you agree to it. And then as you mentioned just right now for the employer, they're going to go with this option, hopefully, before they start firing people, furloughing, laying people off. So they both kind of feel like they have no other option but to do this. And you look at what the effect is going to be, smaller paychecks, less spending, the recession that's going on would be extended. So this is a really bad sign all around because, you know, for the reasons you just mentioned, it shows that employees feel that they have no better option, as you said. And the New York Federal Reserve actually put out a survey this past week. Americans now feel they have a less than 50% chance of being able to find a job within three months if they lost their job today. And that's a more than 16 percentage point drop from a year ago. So it really, you know, these employees in many cases probably feel lucky that they have a job and they say, okay, I'll take this. 20% pay cut because it means I can keep working and hopefully it's temporary. But we just don't know where things go from here. And it's a worrisome trend for sure. And these pay cuts generally hit more people in white collar industries. I know the job losses tend to be more low income workers, but these tend to be on the other side of things. One of those studies I mentioned was put out by some Federal Reserve economists and economists at the University of Chicago. And they found that three fourths of the cuts in pay fell within the top 40% of wage earners. So on one hand, that's somewhat of a good thing you could say. You could say these are workers who are more able to weather the cut to their income and might have more wealth to carry them through or might not be as dependent on their full paycheck. But on the other hand, these workers are also the ones that tend to be more shielded from an economic recession. And so if these workers in the top 40% are already feeling something like a pay cut, that also really you know, says something worrying about the depths of the recession and damage to the labor market as well. What are some of the companies that are going through this? I know my company, iHeart Media, did something similar to this. A lot of people took cuts in you know quarter two and quarter three type of thing. Uh, so what are some of the other companies that are doing this? So it tends to be pretty widespread. And among smaller companies, there's no way of of totally judging it. But some really big companies have taken part as well. So I spoke with one economist, Julia Coronado, who tracked U.S.-based companies with market caps greater than $1 billion. So really, really, you know, major companies. And she found that of the ones that were providing details on earnings calls, 42% were announcing that they were reducing pay between April and July. So some of those on there are Lyft, the ride-sharing app was announcing reductions for all salaried employees. And other companies were focusing their reductions just on their top executives or maybe their board. Best Buy and Gap both did that. So some major names were doing this, but also, you know, we know that just anecdotally, we know that sort of mom and pop shops and smaller companies and restaurants and things were doing this as well. And so now what's the outlook? We're seeing cases rise. 
this thing is not going to be over for some time still. I noted in your article there was uh, you know, a number of American households expecting to lose income over the next month. That, according to a recent survey, that number is beginning to rise. So what can we be expecting soon? Likely expecting the trend to just increase. I know those University of Chicago economists, for example, are in the process of updating their paper. They're seeing some of those trends really continue and spread the longer that this goes on. And we also know that even, you know, regardless of what governments do and whether governors decide to actually impose regulations, we know that consumers change their spending habits just based on their own fear of the virus. And so as cases rise, regardless of whether there's actual shutdown restrictions in place, we know that as long as the virus is raging the way that it is now, consumers are going to stay inside. They're going to be spending less money, which, of course, it's good from a public health perspective that they're not going out as much, but bad from an economic perspective that a lot of these businesses then just can't get back on their feet. And, you know, the worrying thing is just maybe companies were able to hang on for a few months, especially smaller businesses, but larger ones as well. And so the longer that this goes on, particularly with no end in sight, really, it just becomes harder and harder to really lean on your savings or maybe you got a loan from the government, but it was short term. It just becomes harder to really hang on without income coming in that you're really depending on. Megan Casella, economics reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. President Trump is planning to send Homeland Security investigations agents to Chicago and other cities to help local law enforcement deal with the spike in crime. These agents will likely assist in intelligence gathering, targeting drug trafficking groups and gangs. But there's a lot of pushback on this plan. For more on this, we'll speak to Nick Miroff, Department of Homeland Security reporter at The Washington Post. Well, as many of your listeners will be aware, there's been a significant increase in violent crime in several U.S. cities over the past few months, Chicago, New York, and elsewhere have seen a lot of gun violence in particular. Now, one of the tricky things is that that dynamic is being conflated with the situation we're seeing unfold in Portland, which is quite different, where protesters are squaring off against federal agents outside a courthouse every night. That is very much the kind of political dynamic that we saw several months ago after the killing of George Floyd. And what the president is talking about going forward would be a sort of a federal response to this increase in violent crime. And so far, we know that that's planned for Chicago, but that firm operations aren't scheduled yet for any other U.S. city so far. And to further clarify that distinction, what's going on in Portland, the agents that were dispatched there are there to protect federal property, basically. And in Chicago, this is more of a response to crime that's going on there, which has gone up. There's a lot of different things that's going on. There's a lot of shootings. There's a lot of homicides that are going on. And that's what they're talking about with regards to Chicago. One of the things that we're seeing is that the president and his rhetoric, and particularly his campaign rhetoric, is kind of trying to conflate the two things and saying that the kind of rowdy street protests that we're seeing in Portland, particularly attacking this federal courthouse that's being defended by DHS agents every night, you know, that that is the kind of anarchy that he um, says is playing out on U.S. streets everywhere and is to blame for this increase in shootings. And he is laying that squarely at the feet of Democratic mayors, he said yesterday in the Oval Office, that the radical left mayors are responsible for this and that he's going to basically send in the feds whether they like it or not. And, you know, he's warning that if Joe Biden, his opponent, were to win, 
that we would see this kind of chaos breaking out across the country. So it's very consistent with his campaign effort to present himself as a kind of law and order figure who can pacify these cities and bring everything under control. But again, DHS officials, when you talk to them and dig down, make very clear that they don't see the Portland situation as being comparable to what's happening in these U.S. cities and are planning a very different deployment for both cases. So in Chicago, they're looking to send about 150 Homeland Security investigative agents there. It doesn't sound like they're going to be out on the streets uh, doing enforcement, making arrests, things like that. So what would they be doing there in Chicago to aid local police? Well, so Homeland Security Investigations is a division of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, and immediately that makes people think of immigration agents. And that particular division of ICE is the one that targets transnational crime, drug trafficking, counterfeit goods, things like that. And so in this case, they say they will not be involved in an immigration enforcement role, but will be working on surveillance and helping local and state authorities that are targeting gangs, drug traffickers, and the actors, they say, who are really driving this increase in homicides. It's not a civilian or urban policing role where they will be out on the streets, and it has nothing to do with anti-government protests, unlike the situation in Portland. What has the local response been? I know the mayor, Lori Lightfoot, has said, you know, she doesn't want federal agents there. What else have they been saying? Well, that's, you know, a dynamic that we see over and over again, where it's sort of like if this had occurred quietly and state and local officials would be getting support from the federal government, as they always do, because, again, a lot of these federal agents are already working in that area, working in the Metro Chicago area and cooperate with state and local police as a routine part of their job. It's when you see the president making it into a kind of campaign-related effort, into a projection of his power, into a standoff with Democrats, that you politicize it and you get that response from Mayor Lightfoot and others who I think, you know, out of hand feel they have to kind of, you know, reject it, this deployment with the idea that they can't be seen as kind of accepting the president imposing federal forces on their cities, particularly from an agency like Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, that has such a damaged reputation right now. What about response from police? There has been a lot of stuff there. As I mentioned, there's been 414 homicides, more than 1,600 shootings, more than 2,000 shooting victims this year so far. What about police? Chicago Police Union and other police unions welcome the federal support and want the federal government to help. And that's a particular point of tension, I think, between Democratic mayors who are responding to these calls to you know, defund the police, abolish the police, and are facing a, uh, you know, a very tenuous situation on the streets after George Floyd and the police departments themselves, at least the unions that feel besieged and unfairly blamed or painted with a broad brush. I think the president is trying to get inside that rift and try to shore up their support and his image as a defender of law and order. Well, the plans are still being worked out, so we'll see what the rollout looks like. Nick Miroff, Department of Homeland Security reporter at The Washington Post, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Anytime. Don't forget to join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. <laughs>